Stand at ease. Ten years later, September 11, 2011. I wanted to feel. I really wanted to feel patriotic. I really wanted to feel for these people. I really wanted to feel for our country. You know, that moment in history changed the entire United States and everything that we do. We had, we had the Arab world ready to take on terrorism themselves. Well, fellas, I'd like to welcome you back after just only a short delay. Today's a, a special day. It's going to be a good day, but it's going to be a little different subject for us. We're looking at 10 years later, on September 11th, 2001, our nation... Uh, went through a, a very trying time, and we have some special guests with us, but uh, a special guest with us, our standard guest, of course, all the way to my left, DBO and Christian in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Welcome back, David. Good morning. David is uh, unwilling to try the hair of the dog, an inside joke, but over to my <laughs> right, James L. Johnson from The Recovering, and now, might I add, a very dangerous football team out of Detroit, James L. Johnson Jr. Welcome back, buddy. Thank you very much. And I look forward to today's show. And I want you to take this opportunity to introduce our guest that we have for us today because he's uh, somebody that you've known for, for a while and somebody that's going to shed a lot of subject on. Jim, why don't you introduce uh, our guest today? Yeah, I'd like to introduce Rich Rossi. Rich hails from New York, and I thought it was only fitting because he very much in tune with what took place at 9-11. Rich is also a uh, Navy veteran. So, Rich, you want to say hello there? Hello. And uh, I uh, just want to tell you that uh, I, I had to pick up my son at the airport last night in New York City, and I got stuck in 9-11 traffic. Uh, and I got home at 5 o'clock this morning. So, wow. <laughs> not oh, on my sharpest, but uh, good morning, everyone. You know, Rich, I'm glad that you could uh, take today and spend with us, because I know that 9-11 has a special memory to all New Yorkers, and I know that you knew a lot of the people in the Trade Center with it. Rich, a little bit about your background so that people understand that uh, you're actually a Wall Street guy and you're also a Navy veteran. Um, okay, very quickly. I mean, I was in the uh, in the Navy from uh, 1964 to 68, uh, served off a Tonkin aboard a destroyer. Um, when I uh, exited the Navy, I went to uh, Marist College here in Poughkeepsie. I uh, graduated with, uh, you know, studied psychology. Philosophy. Hey, hey. Nothing wrong with psychology. A little psychology. <laughs> uh, and, of course, that prepared me well for my career on Wall Street. Um, and I, I started working on Wall Street in the early 80s. Uh, and... It's still what I do, although I'm an independent, uh, uh, I guess you call me an independent investment banker at this point. Um, so uh, I've, uh, I worked with many of the people that were killed uh, at 9-11 uh, at the World Trade Center. Um, in fact, uh, uh, on 9-10, uh, uh, there was a family that uh, spent the weekend with us here at my house up in upstate New York. And uh, uh, fellow Robert, and he was uh, he was killed uh, the next day, and uh, so it has a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of memories, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. I had a, a niece who uh, was just walking into the building, and uh, she got away. Thank God. She was and, actually walking into the building when the plane when the when the first or second. She plane was came. actually walking into the building. She uh, she was on her way to. Uh, to somewhere up on the hundredth floor, somewhere, and uh, the plane struck. And uh, wow, yeah, yeah, yep. It's just, it, just amazing. You know, for yeah, it, it, yeah, it's just you know, it's hard to comprehend uh, and understand. And you know, I was there uh, on that Friday. In fact, I I saved my little tag that you put on when you go into the World Trade Center. I was, I was up on the hundred and fourth floor on Friday. You know, one of the things that's interesting, because you can take a look at, you know, 10 years ago today, and that one event is now the genesis for so many of the young veterans that we've had on board. I mean, up until that point in time, I mean, you went from 64 to 68. Jim came in just slightly after that, and he spent his tours in, in Vietnam. David and I, we were Cold War veterans. You know, we came in after that, and but we didn't really have... 
you know, any hot wars or whatever, but that moment 10 years ago today and the impact of so many lives, so many lives lost, and yet still our our uh, need and desire to make sure that we protect ourselves and not go back into it. So it's, it's both, it, you know, it's both a sombering moment, I mean, when you think about it and then also thinking about the impact that so few 11 folks, you know, taking over of just rippled across the planet and um never i don't know maybe maybe we'll never see i hope we never see anything quite like this again but what an important experience and you are there you know it's not you know this is first person research that we're doing here today you know this isn't this isn't uh you know revisionist history or reading about it in in the books you were there uh and have a have an interesting story to tell well, thank God, I you know I was I was an hour and a half away, so I don't want to give you the impression I was right there. But actually, uh, uh, I was in uh, in court that morning. Um, I got my divorce, and uh, all of a sudden, everything just came to the to a stand. It, it reminded me of uh, you know back in the uh, in the uh, in the '60s or the '50s when when the World Series was on. You know, and the classrooms. Uh, would come to a grinding halt at school, and a teacher would bring in a black and white TV set. And everybody watched the World Series during the day. It's actually and called Lambo. That's <laughs> called that's called Wisconsin <laughs> during Sundays in Green Bay Packers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, it's just uh, yeah, everything just came to a halt, and it was the you know what's uh, you know, reports of continuing attacks, and uh, the whole the whole the whole thing was uh, just surreal. I would like to hear about that. So, in fact, I'd like to hear about what where, what, where all of us were and what we were doing. So, you were in divorce court. <laughs> I was in divorce court. At, uh, you know, the the judge waiting for the judge to come in, and uh, you know, heard heard this commotion coming from an empty uh, courtroom, and uh, everybody kind of gravitated over there, and there was a radio blasting, and uh, uh, my attorney came running in. He said he just heard that. Uh, the World Trade Center was was hit by a plane, two planes, and it was like you know, it was so hard to get your head around that. What, yeah. what are you talking about? I mean, yeah. you know, what do you mean a plane hit? Your first thought was, you know, a small little, you know, Cessna hit the hit the World Trade Center. You know, somebody had a little. That was much to- that was that was my first thought too. That was a just a little a little plane, and I thought, well, they'd had that bomber to hit the Empire State Building back right after World War Two. Exactly, exactly, and, uh, and then I, you know, I got home by I don't know, within uh, within a half hour or so, forty five minutes, and then watching the footage of the buildings collapsing on themselves was just, you know, that was, and it was just, you know, it's indescribable just uh, what was what was happening, and knowing that I knew knew so many people in those buildings, yeah, and, and well, seeing. Was- was was there a rage that went through you, Rich, or, or you were just numb? It was numb. It was numbness. It, it was something. You, it was one of those things that you just can't get your head around. You know, there was no, there was no reference point in my head. For you that. know, you that's you could not have said that was exact. I wrote a piece for the local newspaper in Menominee when I when I had come back, and I, I, that was exactly the feeling that you you just described it perfectly for me. I could not. I had no reference point, and I just couldn't find a place to plug it in intellectually, emotionally. For it took me over a day to really be able to find uh, my bearing. I, I, I don't know. I, yeah, exactly. A sucker punch, you know. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, when this took place for me, I was inside of a BMW dealership. I had just concluded a transaction where a guy signed me a check for $150,000. And I was sitting in my office, and all of a sudden the receptionist ran in and she says, Mr. Johnson, you've got to see this on TV. I got up, I walked out, went into the receptionist room where there there was a television, and there was about 15, 20 people in there, and they were all watching the building's burning, and then the second plane came in afterwards. And people would, looked, because they knew, they knew I was a war veteran, and they looked at me and they said, Jim, what's going on? I, our country's going to go to war. We're being attacked. It's just that simple. I was 53 years old then, and I remember my feeling 
what hit me the hardest was that there was nothing I could do. Yeah. This was this yeah. was something that I had to set out on because I was just way too old to do anything. The first things that popped in my mind was, who the fuck did this, and where are they at, and how could they even conceivably get through our security nets? And secondly, how are we going to retaliate this? Are we going to drop an atomic bomb on them? Are we going to send uh, troops? These are all the thoughts that went through my head, and as the day wore on, frustration overcome me because I was too old to do anything. I never will forget that. I was 53 years old. I, it was impossible for me to go back into uniform. But I wanted to lash out to, at someone. I, I wanted to lash out at something. <laughs> but it, it was, those were the thoughts that were in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where, where were you, Dave? Um, I had just, I was getting ready to go to work. And I was listening to National Public Radio, the morning uh, morning shows, and they had just had a piece on about the assassination of the uh, warlord warlord up in northern Afghanistan. Or oh, with the camera, and, they they hit right, a, right, yeah, in the, in the TV camera, yeah, I remember that. And they, um, El or Al Qaeda had just taken um, credit for it, and they were, I mean, they had just gotten, they had just concluded that story. And within like five minutes, there is the first report of the plane hitting. And my wife and I are walking around in the living room, and you know, like I said, I'm getting ready to go to work. I was just about ready to go walk out the door when it when that first plane hit. And I looked at it and I said, "Wouldn't it be something if this was Al Qaeda too?" And I got to work. Uh, we had just gotten a TV in the break room. And I flipped on the TV, and everyone was kind of like, what are you doing? I said, well, there's something going on in New York right now. I want to see if there's any reports. And we started watching, and I think I had just sat down at the table. I, I had taken all my work into the break room and was, was doing out there, and I looked up just in time to see that second plane hit. And I was like, well, I'm going home. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was... Um... I was in Rabat, Morocco. I was at I was at school, getting ready to end my day. It was the afternoon it was pretty much done, and I was walking across. It wasn't a big campus, but I was walking across the campus. And as I was going across, one of the one of the people that works w worked for me was in a lab, and she said, "You're not going to believe this, but a plane just hit the World Trade Center." And she had she had had it up in her browser on cnn.com and uh and when we had when i went up so I, I so i finished what i was doing and i went back up up on campus to to talk to her about it and we had seen it and from that point forward we were cut off the the internet was jammed all the traffic going in and out of the united states from morocco the their internet connection to the world was completely jammed Every once in a while, you would get a little bit of just a little trickle coming in and out. And I, there was an American who owned an international uh, telecommunications a network company. His name is Carl Stanzig from MTDS.com. And I called him. I said, Carl, what do you got? He said, look, because he, he was my upstream. We were buying internet for me. He's like, look, the whole country is jammed. He said, I can barely get out. He said, I do have, a, I do have an open line to Sri Lanka. So he ended up calling Sri Lanka. And he started calling me with some play-by-play, -play, kind of what was going on there. At least this is my recollection of it, just a little bit. wasn't much coming in. And then finally, a friend of mine, Jeff Glessing, who was on the show with us, was one of our guests on the show, uh, called me up and said, look, he said, we've got uh, AFN, Armed Forces Network, and uh, why don't you come on over? So we drove over to the Marine House at the embassy and uh, packed up. And went over there, and I watched what, what was happening there, with uh, with a with a bunch of Marines uh, who eventually ended up getting called into. He was on duty. He was a, he was in charge, or he was a assistant uh, a slash there, whatever the hell you call him, director and detachment commander actually. And so he he had to stay at the command post for the guys, and and uh, we were watching it, and then eventually he got a phone call that 
we had to we had to leave and he had to prepare for locking and loading and and that was the end of it that's we just couldn't get any information could not get anything out the internet was jammed and had i not been able to go over to jeff's house obviously there was news that was on television that was on on you know al jazeera's and and Duzem and stuff like that but i didn't have you know i didn't have moroccan television i didn't have satellite you know everything i got was through the web at the time and so it took me it took us several hours to 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 really figure out what what was going on and the information kind of trickled in it's just amazing and you know that moment in history changed the entire united states and everything that we do you know, it cast us off into a, a long 10-year struggle. You know, I've been doing a lot of reading. There's a book out that I would suggest you take a look at. It's called Top Secret America, The Rise of the New American Security State. Do you know that there's over 51 groups now that track the money flow to and from terrorist networks? I mean, it, it's just amazing. There's over 2,000 companies that work on top-secret projects and programs for the government, and there's an additional 1,200 organizations that work on secret programs. And the cost of 9-11, just on a monetary side, since that time is over $5 trillion. You know, Donald Rumsfeld, at the time we entered into this uh, war with Iraq and Afghanistan, he estimated a cost to be somewhere around $60 billion. We're over $5 <laughs> trillion. Jim, don't you and, get the... Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, just to make a quick comment, don't you get the feeling like we've entered since 9-11, not only in the area that you just mentioned, but just about in everything in our lives, we've almost like entered into warp speed Everything is oh, moving at such a pace. It, it's without a doubt. Without it's a doubt. impossible to keep up with world events, with world news, with the flows of money, with the corruption of governments. It's like, whoa. And, you know, I got to do this all day long because I got to make investment decisions. It, it, it's, it's got me to the point that I was down in Costa Rica. I might, I might just go back down and... and and get me a, uh, a hammock at uh, Rock and Jay's and <laughs> <laughs> put a sign outside my hammock. Leave me the fuck alone. You know, if you take in, and let's go along that, that vein with it, because you deal with this on a day to day basis as far as investments goes and people that you come in contact with, and it has changed so dramatically. I mean, people really don't know what to do or how to go about doing it, and there's so much money that changes hands. You know, people who live in New York, people like yourself, Rich, who you were affected strongly by it because you knew a lot of the people in that building, and maybe even some of the people who jumped from the floors to their death you knew. I don't know. But it, it had a strong, strong impact on New York, more so than any other state. Course, Pennsylvania and everything else, but New York had a that was where the big hit came from. That was a constant reminder, and it went on and on and on. And when I was up in New York, I was amazed at the amount of stories that I heard about conspiracy theories and different things that I never knew existed, like the computer chips. Oh, you're talking about the government putting key loggers on every new box. Oh, oh no no! Oh, you're not talking no. about that. Be advised, there's a key logger on every machine made by every the government of the United States made sure that there would be a key logger put into every uh, computer and a laptop is is a chip in there after 9/11. Hmm. So there's a chip on every box. In fact, uh, there's a lot of places people that do that do a lot of their work in these places are buying old Windows 95 machines. <coughs> To uh, because those old machines would wouldn't have the key, wouldn't, wouldn't have the key logger in them. Are you right, David? Yep. Yeah. I thought I had it muted there. <laughs> no, it's true. That's true. They there's so many yeah. things that have happened in terms of it. The story that I'm about to tell you is true. I had a blog post, and I in in my post um, when I was living in Morocco, and uh, I, I I mean I've changed. Garlandgreen.com has been changed and morphed 
so many times it's ridiculous but at this particular time I used it as my as my personal writing and and I was personally blogging and I didn't think that President Bush was every time here's what would happen and a lot of people don't realize this the first three days after the World Trade Center the feeling in the Arab world certainly where I was at was this sense of they can't believe it. They really wanted to change it. They weren't angry. They were. They, I mean, people would come around, and and uh, it was just amazing, outpouring. You know, they knew we. I was an American. There was a former judge. who was my landlord, who was a who was a, a Supreme Court judge. Came over, and he owned the house that we were renting. And he came over, and he brought his wife, and just did. We couldn't speak. I couldn't speak Arabic, and he spoke some French, and so I could get around that way, but. He just literally just sat in, came in for an hour, and just held my hand, just just to say, you know, that's all he could do. I mean, the Arab world felt it, but every time President Bush opened his hole, and the way in which he talked, the Arab world got angrier and angrier and angrier at that particular time, and we, I, I believe that having lived there. We sh- we should have approached this in a slightly different way. Oh, yeah, I, I, well, yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more, and I I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I mean, everybody. I mean, this idea that you know this Toby Keith bullshit that we're going to put a boot up your ass because it's the American way. We mm-hmm. had we had the Arab world ready to take on terrorism themselves, <laughs> and we came across with cowboy diplomacy, and fucked it up. Mm. It was terrible. It was terrible. Well, you know, that's, that's you know, we kind of segue into a little conspiracy theory here. I mean, it's almost as if that was, uh, you know, that was the plan. I mean, uh, you know, again, working on Wall Street, I have, I have never in my life thought that so many crooks and scoundrels and liars and thieves could all be congregated in one place. I mean, you know, I, I, I just, I, I would walk into boardrooms where there's 50, 100 brokers calling, you know, retired people or hard workers all over the country and and, and putting them into the next investment scam. And, and, you know, and again, that whole thing has warped. That I mean, we've passed these, these laws, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, and, um, and of course, we, 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 uh, we uh, rescinded the Glass-Siegel Act. And all these things that we have done have not helped investors they have hurt investors and they and, and then you, you you look at you know why are we at war and why did we do this and it all to me in my mind let me just back up you know there's only one group of individuals in this country that are exempt from insider trading rules and regulations there's only one group and that's congress yeah and that's fucking scary yeah that is scary in other words if they know that they're going to pass legislation on a certain industry, restrict a certain industry, they're allowed to go short that industry or go long that industry, whatever it might be, beforehand. Yeah. And it's perfectly legit. So we've got, you know, people talk about conspiracy theories. I, I don't believe in this huge conspiracy theory stuff. I don't believe, I mean, hell, I can't get three or four guys to agree to what television show to watch. <laughs> Try to get hundreds of people to act in concert. However, when you think of the sociopaths, the, the, the people that are running our government, you know, sociopaths all have the same ultimate motivation. And so, yeah, they're, 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 their motivations are going to align once in a while. And so it appears like a conspiracy. But it's only because these are all sociopaths. And if there's any congressman or senators listening, you know, I'm sure there's a few of you out there who really care about what you're doing and really care about the direction of this country. But for the most part, for the most part, they're sociopaths. Look, they care about it for the first term. No, they care about it up up until about halfway through their first term when they have to think about re-election. Yeah. I mean, and the proof of the pudding is, you know, you get a guy like, like Bill Clinton... Some people think he's a great president. Some think he was a worm. I don't know. But bottom line is the man has made over $100 million since he's been president. And you say, well, that's wonderful. That's the American way. And I say bullshit. 
<laughs> the man set it all up while he was president. He was paid tens and twenties of millions of dollars for making certain introductions based on certain things he did while he was president. I mean, this is, you know, it, it's just, and that's what I meant by everything is going warp speed. I mean, you're going to see, uh, uh, you know, getting back to you know, 9-11 and conspiracy theories. I mean, when I first started hearing some of this stuff, you know, and some of the some of the claims made. I mean, I think today there's over 1,500 architects around the world, some of the top architects in the world, who have signed on to not believing the official, you know, 9/11 version. Um, and uh, all, all. I mean, you go, you, Christ, you can you can get you can go down the rabbit hole if you want to start looking at all these conspiracy theories. But there's a couple of very glaring things that jump out at you. And the, the main one to me is the World Trade Center number seven. We all and, and even when we had the, we started this discussion a half hour ago, we're talking about you know the first tower and the second tower. Everybody forgets about the third tower. Right. And that was the important one. That was no plane hit that building. No fires started in that building. The building was three hundred feet from the closest tower, but yet it collapsed onto itself. It's the first and the only time in you know, modern history in history that a building has collapsed onto itself like that without being set up to do so. And you know, and, who, the, and what was inside of that building, Rich? Ah, well, that's a good question, Jim, and I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was some very insignificant agency offices, such as CIA offices, FBI headquarters. SEC headquarters, uh, investigations into major, major criminal operations involving God knows how much money. All of that stuff was in that building and destroyed in that building. So this isn't so much a, um, a conspiracy of the government as much as the government itself could have gotten hit? You know, I don't even, I don't know. I don't know, you know, you go fast forward and go to, I mean, you know, if any of us had a son and, and, and they go to Iraq and, 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 and if they should, you know, be unfortunate and get killed in Iraq or Afghanistan, and what, what does the family get uh, monetary? Ten, ten grand. 20, okay, ten grand. Uh, now, look, I feel bad for all these survivors. They call them survivors. They're, 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 they're not, they're, they're survivors of the victims of 9-11. I, I feel bad for them. But two, three, four million dollars each? What the hell was that about? When in history did we ever do anything like that? We didn't do that in Oklahoma. Why did we pay these people two, three million dollars a pop and then get them to sign a statement, as they did, in fact, that they will not sue the airlines or anybody else related to the incident? Just take your three million dollars and go away. Except, of course, I mean, everybody was paid according to what they were getting paid, which, again, is ridiculous. If you were in the financial services industry and making a million dollars a year, Mac. well, you probably got six, seven, eight million bucks, you, your wife or your family did. If you were working up on the uh, uh, Windows of the World restaurant making 20 grand a year, your family got a check for 100 grand. Um, but even so, when was that ever? What's, what's up with that? And most of these people are working in the financial service industry that had plenty of insurance on top of that. I'm only curious about, you know, talk about, here's one of the things that I've always been curious about. And it's like, it's, it's been about the Pentagon. I, why oh. is it that I can't find even a goddamn landing gear or piece of aluminum at, that hit this, this building? You can't find more than a handful of pieces from this supposed plane that hit the Pentagon. And and if you look at the, and you can't find any any uh, and you, uh, look let's what 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 if, if if the question was was posed what is the most secure building in the world <laughs> yeah. you would have to say <laughs> it's the Pentagon it's the Pentagon that has to be the most secure building in the world and here we have no video the only video footage we have is from a gas station across the highway yeah and even that's just some supposed flash yeah yeah. I mean, there's no wings. No wings go into the building. No. And then the, the, the few photos that, that there are from the official report, 
You could actually see where the building was actually cut into. You could actually see you know, where office space was exposed. You could see wooden furniture and no, 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 no visible effects of fire. But yet, no airline seats, no luggage. <laughs> I mean, what the hell is that all about? Yeah, not even a not even a landing gear or a yeah. motor or a fin or yeah nothing. nothing. I mean, when that plane was blown out of the sky, uh, you know, a few years after nine eleven, down here over Rockaway Beach. Oh, you're talking about the about TWA flight. Yeah, the TWA flight. I mean, they were a, that that thing was blown up into the sky, in the sky, fell to earth, you know, into the ocean. And they recovered about 90% of that plane and put it back together in a hangar. Yeah. These guys can't give me a piece of melted aluminum. <laughs> yeah, and the questions go on and on and on and on. And to the point, like I say, you know, you've got to be fucking nuts to believe that, that there's not more to it than that what they told us, which then brings up the whole question, why? Um, you know, and, and, and again, you, you, there's a lot of theories about how the two towers collapsed onto their own footprint, but not Trade Center, not, not World Trade Center number seven. That's the special, and, and the Pentagon. Those two are just, you know, really major, major cluster marks. And the shame of it is, as I was going through, man, I went right past uh, Ground Zero last night coming back from the airport because uh, I wanted to show my son uh, the new tower that's going up. And, uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to feel, I really wanted to feel patriotic. I really wanted to feel for these people. I really wanted to feel for our country. I really wanted to feel that I, but the nagging thoughts in my head was like, you know, somebody's chuckling about this. Somebody had a plan here. You know, the and, thing that's interesting is, is that you and I have not had this conversation. We've never not talked about it, but I swear to God, it's as if. You're sucking my thoughts right out of my brain here. I have I'm I'm at that same spot, man. I'm at that same exact spot in the sense that I have got to tell you that there is something lingering inside of my soul that's telling me that something something stinks here. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, then your mind can just go off in a million different directions and like I say, you can you can go down how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? You know, how, how much do you want to go with this, and, and how could this have been planned? Uh, by the way, you know, you, you mentioned uh, buddy George Bush. Do you know the, it, let's just say that some of these conspiracy people are correct, and it was really thermite that brought the buildings down, you know, which, which would be the only thing that we know that could bring buildings right, down. Like right, that. right, right. Uh, okay, let's assume that that's good. Do you know, you, in order to plant that thermite, that can't be done in a few hours. It would no. take weeks. Yeah. Okay. So it would it would it would require the help of the security company that runs the security for those buildings. Yes. Guess who controlled the security company for the World Trade Center? Don't tell me. Marvin, ready? Marvin Bush. The other Bush brother. Interesting. How's that for a <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> Marvin Bush. Did you ever hear of Marvin Bush before or since? No. Never heard of Marvin Bush. Yeah. I heard of Jeb. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of Marvin. And he's CEO of the security company in charge of security for the World Trade Center at the time of 9-11. Interesting. What does it mean? I don't know. You know, it's interesting because, you know, they, they, a lot of folks come in there, well, let's just extrapolate it. What does it mean? It probably means what a lot of folks are saying, that the democracy and the people who are running the government aren't really running the government, and that what we see and the stuff that they tell us is just a placebo, that we've long since lost control of this government years ago. So you've got to ask yourself that question, you know? And then we look at the, at how much government has expanded since 9-11. If I remember correctly, didn't George Bush say he wanted to make government smaller? <laughs> and yet, he under his watch, we have the 
organize or the largest government organ reorganization in history and yeah now now we have the department of homeland security and i keep asking why the hell do we need that when we already had a department of homeland security in the in the defense department they consolidated the whole thing i know it's it's almost as if it's it's we're, we're, we're rapidly again at warp speed going to to a, to a police state i went a little town close to me called new paltz little university town uh, population maybe 12,000 is probably a, a like amount of students there. Peaceful little town in the mountains. Uh, my son and I were driving up for dinner a few weeks ago. As I approach town, I see six, I'm telling you, six police cars with the lights on, lights flashing in front of one of the restaurants. I said, oh my God, something happened. Six cars. I mean, two or three state police, two or three town police, campus police, DEC police. And I, Something happened. I pull over and I see somebody walking by. I said, what the hell is going on over there? Somebody get shot? No, there was a lover's, a lover's quarrel. I said, what do you mean a lover's quarrel? I said, did the guy hit her? Or did the girl hit the guy? No, no, no violence. I said, no violence and there's six police cars? So I kind of use that as, as an anecdote, like when I'm talking to people, if they believe that we are, like this Homeland Security consolidation and the amount of money that's going into this police state... I said, do you find that strange? I mean, all it really required was one police car. Right. What the hell is six police cars doing? They're all with their lights on, creating this havoc. What is going This We're just over-policed. Before we get... Oh. Hang on. Uh, make a note of this, David. Jim, are yep. you still with us? Oh, yeah. I'm Excellent. There. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, well, maybe they are offering free donuts at the restaurant. Well, Jim... <laughs> You know, Jim, you've been silent on this one. Where, where's your take on this, my friend? No, I, I'm, I'm really not. Rich and I have had some in-depth conversations about all this. Here's, uh, and I'll join in here shortly because Rich has much more that he can share with you. I want to talk about the effects on our troops. Yeah. I mean, this is a this is a thing that really, really gets to me. You know that uh, almost 50% of the returning troops are eligible to receive some level of disability payment. Mm. There's more than 600,000 so far that have been treated at VA medical facilities. Now, you realize that we're looking at somewhere, and this is an estimate that was put together by uh, the Watson Institute for International Studies at Brown University. Health care for the returning veterans are going to be somewhere between six hundred billion to nine hundred billion dollars. Yeah. And you know what? There's over eighteen and this is all recorded now. There's over eighteen suicides per day from veterans. Hmm. And God knows how many family breakups. Yeah, I mean, we it, talked a little bit about that yesterday. You know, the thought is that they're coming back and the military is trying to do whatever they can to to keep families together. Yeah, yeah Minnesota started a program called the Beyond the Yellow Ribbon Program. And um, it's that's gone nationwide now, if I, if I remember correctly. And I'm trying to track someone down from that organization to possibly come on a show in the future. But they they do checks with the... With the with the veterans, once they are released from active duty, they do a uh, thirty, sixty, and ninety day check, just to see how people are doing. And if you don't respond to your your check in call, they send people out to check up on you. What do you know? Now let's take this one step farther. The millions of people who have been displaced, or who we call war refugees. In the last 10 years, do you know that that's over 7,800,000 people? It's the equivalency if we took all the people in Connecticut and Kentucky and made them leave their homes. Yeah. I yeah, mean, but it's, you know, yeah, but it's huge. them, Jim. It's them, Jim. You know, God, we've got to start that. It's, it, it comes down to that, that conversation that, that we had earlier. I wonder what, what is it going to take for us as people to realize that we're just the same people. It's really not an us and a them mentality. Is it going to take a, 
an alien spacecraft to land to realize that Team Earth has to play together? Well, you know, we had that movie come out last March, you know, with the the Space Marines or whatever. Uh, what was the name of the movie? What was it? Invasion of L.A. or something like that? Oh, there's... Marines, the Marines wow, kicking the... got in North Dakota then. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Marines. I heard that one. Up... It was it was out for like uh, about a week, and it was a bunch of Marines kicking alien ass out in L.A. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I you, thought, you know, I, I don't know so much about that. I know over six thousand U.S. soldiers have died. I know that six hundred thousand have been treated. I know that there's been over a quarter of a million people killed in the last 10 years. I mean, these may or may not be big numbers, but, you know, you look at this and you say, what the hell's going on? And here's the thing that really troubles me. It's the decades to come. Yeah. Because all of these things that these kids have gone through, it's going to start to surface. We talk about it in our shows all the time. You know, it, it, it happens. These are things, these are thoughts, these are emotions that stay with you for your entire life. And they not only affect you, they affect the people that are around you. I mean, it, it's it's huge. So, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of concerns about these things. You know, having fought wars, having taken lives, I realize just how valuable life is. So, I mean, these are the things, whenever I see our politicians stand up and they talk about this and they talk about that, those are thoughts that goes through my mind. I look at right now just how volatile the Middle East is. Look, look what's taken place in Egypt, who was for years a quasi-ally of Israel. The way, from what I read, and I read a lot, from what I read, the Egyptian people, they're up in arms over the Palestinian issue. Look what's happening right now with Turkey and Israel. That's I mean, a bigger look, problem, actually. That's a bigger issue. Right now, yeah, that's, well, a, that's a larger issue right now than what's taking place in Egypt. Um, they're both, but both... I, I guarantee you there's only a small handful of people who really realize these things are taking place right now. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll go on a segue since I'm right here and, in, in, you know, I'm in, I'm in the thick of it, you know. Um, the, the Palestinian issue, just a little bit, to talk a little bit about the Palestinian issue, the this is my understanding for those people that are going to listen and call me and I'm not a scholar I'm not pretending to be a scholar I'm just I'm just boots on the ground right now and mm-hmm. and here here's what I can say is at the moment um, nobody really in the Arab world is running around here trying to defend Palestine right now even though that the people on the ground are really upset about Palestine and the biggest f- frustration that the Arab world is having about the Palestinians is that they 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 struggle to. And it's, it's, I'm, look, I'm married to I'm, I'm married to an Arab, so I'm not I'm not defending Israel simply because I happen to be living in Israel. Quite the contrary, but the Palestinians have have missed opportunities and continue to miss those opportunities. And one of the things that they need to do is find a way to, to accept yes, you know, accept yes, would you? And accept what you can get. And the Egyptians are looking at this as another freedom and another struggle and where they're, how they're going to get there. That's the biggest issue there is not so much about the Palestinians that's concerning me right now. It's what's taking place with Turkey. That's a bigger problem. Israel um, is, and this is something that I wish that I could grab Netanyahu by the throat and shake him. Israel <laughs> is acting, as it applies to that, like spoiled little babies who have always had, have, have always had a free pass, and the government of the United States has always defended and turned their back, and there's big money to be involved in that. But there's a huge difference from my understanding, and like I said, I've only been here since August. There is a huge difference between the Israelis and the Israeli government. I mean, there's just huge demonstrations. Well, I can look down the street right now and I see a tent city of young kids 
who are protesting, and they were down in Tel Aviv protesting. The bigger problem that they've got right now is is such a split between the power elite that's in power and the Knesset and these guys that are that have made it in the power and they've made their money and this younger group of people who are saying, look, man, we're not the Hasidic Jews. The majority of us growing up here, we're, we're, not, we're more secular than we are fundamentalist. Fundamentalism is driving a lot of the decision-making that's taking place here. And the last thing we wanted to do was cause problems and get pissed off. Turkey wants them to say, I'm sorry for making a mistake. And they're not doing it. And, and that, Turkey is, that's a bigger problem than I think at the moment that, that Egypt is. Even though Egypt is down there, Egypt also knows that Israel will wipe its ass in about 15 minutes if they misbehave. And they don't have, you know, is, don't worry about Egypt. Egypt is not a concern militarily right now. The bigger concern is losing Turkey. That's, well, I got, I, got, I got one question about the stuff going on in Egypt, though, because they had the... There was the embassy in Egypt that was just broken into, um, was it twice in the last month, the, the Israeli embassy in, is it Cairo? Yeah. And what's what's uh, the word on the street in Israel about that right now? A few people are talking about that. The, the bigger issue, the, man, the thing that a lot, I wish that the world could understand here, at least certainly that I've discovered, is Israel has its own issues internally that they're interested in and they're really you you have middle east fatigue weighing on the on the average joe and jane lunch pail that's working here you have the peace process and the struggles that are that are saying you know here's what they want right the young people want housing man they can't afford to to buy a house they can't, they're busting, there's people with master's degrees, man, working two jobs, busting their ass, barely being able to afford a mediocre apartment. There's bigger issues internally here than whether or not Egypt and the people there are invading a building of a lot of folks that are saying, you know, people don't realize Netanyahu is not elected prime minister. He was not elected prime minister. Netanyahu came to power here in Israel as a direct result of the fact that the woman who was elected prime minister couldn't put together a coalition government and she refused to lap dance with the Hasidic Jews and, uh, and, and the right-wing uh, conservative nature that they wanted to do and push some issues that's forcing Israel down this more, um, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't say destructive path, but more hardline path. So she was elected, was not able to get a coalition, and subsequently Netanyahu, being a consummate politician that he is, um, was able to put together a coalition. And it's that coalition at the moment that's driving Israeli policy, not reflecting what a lot of the Israelis that have boots on the ground are wanting to do. They're reflecting about 3 to 5%, whatever percentage the number is, very similar to what's taking place in the United States with the Tea Party and the tea baggers who are wanting to, uh, you know, push, you know, you know push Darwin, on I, I got to weigh in with a quick comment here because what's going on in Israel What's going on in Turkey? What's going on in Egypt? What's going on in Tunisia? Where you know they had this big, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, uprising. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed anywhere. What's going on in Greece? Their GDP dropped by seven yeah. percent last quarter. What's going on throughout Europe? Italy's going bankrupt. Greece is bankrupt. The United States is bankrupt. And you know you got to go back in history because history always repeats itself. And what happens? You look, look what, what Switzerland did the other day. Switzerland basically devalued their currency. Yeah. Okay. Once you have currency wars, then you have trade wars, and then you have and, – and trade wars, Neil, you don't have to look much further than um, my old buddy Donald Trump, who I don't like. I find no <laughs> redeeming value in them. And, however, he did say one thing. He said, if I was president, I'd get on the phone and I'd call China and I'd say, listen up, motherfuckers. <laughs> I'm going to slap a 25% tariff on you. Okay. So what you got is you got currency war, you got, tra- you got trade war, and then you got the hot war. And the way I see it, that's what's going on. We are going to repeat the same thing that happened during the 30s. Uh, you know, historians could argue forever 
How did we get out of the depression? Oh, we got out of it because FDR did this, FDR did that. Bullshit. We got out of the depression because we went to war. How did we go to war? We started a trade war with Japan. We made it impossible for, Jap for the Japanese to get any of their raw materials because they don't have any raw materials. So we made it impossible for their economy to continue, so they had to attack us. And we started a nice world war. Everybody went to work, and, and we got out of the depression. And I tell you, that's what I see coming. As sad as that is, and it's the reason why, you know, I don't know what kind of war this is going to be, but, you know, you can see that we're setting Iran up. You can see that it's happening. The alignments are taking place. Who's going to align with who, where, and when? But it's coming. And I don't, I give it, you know, 12 to 18 months. Oh, wow. You're that, you're there. You're 12 that. to 18 months. I mean, how, how could this continue? How can we continue to print the kind? We have a runaway train. The federal, I mean, the way we bailed out these banks in 2008, you know, people like to talk about, well, we only, it was only $800 billion or $1.2 trillion. Bullshit. It was more like $14 trillion. You know? wow. And it's trillions that we keep bailing out the European. We keep bailing out these fraudster banksters who, do you know what the, what the total value of derivative securities is outstanding worldwide? And I don't even know what a freaking derivative is anymore, but the, the total worldwide <laughs> outstanding balance of derivative securities is over a quad, tr a quad trillion dollars. It's over over a thousand trillion. I can barely, I, mean, you know, I can't get my head around, get your head around that one. Can't do it. That's a number <laughs> I don't understand. And so, you know, it's almost like the handwriting's on the wall. I mean, the only way we get out of this. I mean, after World War II, we had the Bretton Woods, you know, yep. we, went to, we went to the dollar standard, where the dollar became the reserve currency of the world. Now China is saying, no, 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 we want the renambi to be, uh, renambi or renambi, I always mispronounce that. But, uh, you know, we want that to be the reserve currency. And, you know, we, we're going to have, well, this is going to be a hot war. And I is, suggest we have the Linden. The Linden. <laughs> the Linden. <laughs> Are you saying we're going to war in Second Life, Dark? <laughs> hey, David, I, Jim, I figured that one would bail past you, but for, for my younger gang, for my younger crowd, that was a pretty funny joke. You, you know, this conversation, and I gave this a lot of thought, because I know Rich, I know where his mind's at, I happen to agree with a lot of what he says. In fact, I'm probably a little more radical in some cases, but here we're celebrating or remembering i don't like that word celebrate yeah, how can you celebrate people dying we're remembering what took place 10 years ago and this is a nationally orchestrated movement all the way across and i was watching some videos of how adolf hitler controlled the masses yeah yep and how that media went into play and how symbolism means so much that's yep. why symbols are stronger than words. Yep. Put Absolutely. the two together, and it becomes devastating. You got it. I had tears in my eyes watching a lot of these memorials yesterday. Now, I don't know why, but I had tears in my eyes. It, it literally touched me that deeply. And the reason why I was touched was because I know more lives are going to be lost. Yeah, and see, you're thinking, and, and, and yeah. that may sound, am I still on with you guys? Yeah, yeah, Can you hear me? yeah, yeah. We're, yeah. We, we hear you, Jim, for sure. Yeah. I, I know more lives are going to be lost. And that doesn't I know. make me sad, Jim. That fucking pisses me off. Who's that? Uh, it, makes, it, it makes me sad in a sense that for some reason, and I don't know, maybe it's a combination of all of these things, <sighs> For some reason, we can't get it through our head that when we send our youngest and our brightest and our best off, I mean, this whole generation, it's a 9-11 generation. Yep. Think, think about it. It's a 9-11 generation. Yeah. We have we're, to we're, these are our future leaders. The kids coming back now from yeah. Afghanistan and Iraq, they are the future leaders. They're the 9-11 generation. And in another decade, two decades, somewhere along that time frame, they will control the way this government and this country works. Well, it won't be a decade, Jim, because I can tell you here, I'm, I, I turn 47 here next month. 
and my generation is not in power yet. It's your generation. It's the baby boomer generation, the baby bust generation, if you will. You know, and you know what's, go and what's going to be sad is that the people that are that will be coming into power are going to remember what our generation did to them, and you know we're going to have payback. The thing about yeah, it is, believe that. I, yeah, I, I had a very deep discussion about that yesterday. My friend and I was sitting down and. Then, and he said, you know what I'm really scared about? I said, no, what's that? He said, I'm really scared about my kids. You know, they're not going to have what I had. I said, what do we have, Frank? What do we have? What, what, what do we have? We had new cars. We had, yeah. we had swimming pools. Fucking and, you know, stuff. That we, we borrowed from future generations to put up our freaking swimming pools and to take vacations and times that we shouldn't have taken them. What do we have? I mean, did we, did we establish real true values? Did, did we keep God, you know, in our country? Did we, did, did we maintain the American dream? No, we didn't. We gave it away. And you, and, you, and, you, and you want to sob about that? Thank you for saying that, man. I swear to God, I have been running around here. I've actually dra- – Jim, I've had this conversation before because I have got a real bone in my throat about the baby boomer generation because yeah. what you just said is you had it by the balls, the biggest voting group. You, 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 you had the most amount of money. You could have done anything you wanted as a nation, as a country, as a planetary leader. You had it. And what did you give me? Viagra? I paid <laughs> debt. And all that bullshit. Yeah. And it's all bullshit. And that's why Jim knows. Jim knows what I built over here in my little house. I got, I got my goats. I got my chickens. I got my little farm going. I mean, you know, I don't need any of that shit. I don't need any of that shit anymore. But this is what that's there. So I look at these people. I'm a tweener, actually. I was born. That's where I'm at. I was born in 64. So I'm the last of the generation. But my generation, unless, of course, we started our own company, whatever it is, we're middle management. We're waiting for you bastards to die off so we can have control of this shit. And you won't do it. You want to know why? Because of all the healthcare bullshit that I'm picking up on. That's right. We're going to suck the last life out of you with our freaking healthcare. You're goddamn right. You know, and, and, and so there's the case. But I, I really, I want you to know something. Somebody should write a book called The Baby Bust, how you yeah. pissed away a nation. Because I like that. My, I like that. My grandfather built roads, built bridges, built dams, built industry, fought. My uncles did exactly the same thing. These are the people that did it. And I look around here and I see these folks and I drive around and I'm I'm going down the road and I'm I'm looking at some gray-haired old freaking dude, you know, driving his Harley Davidson or his sports Mustang. (laughs) (laughs) And and you know, one last thought on this is like, and look what we did to our to our industrial base. We gave it all to China. Everything yep. we gave to China. All this stuff that do you know that Jeff Imhelt is the CEO of GE of GE, right? He sits next to Obama. Obama brought him on as his job czar or whatever the fuck he is. Do you know that in the in the time that Obama has been president, twenty percent of GE's jobs have been shipped over to China? And this is the jobs czar. If you don't think this is all planned destruction, there's something wrong. I mean, and this is ridiculous. And you know that Obama yesterday proposed that uh, that we should help our corporations by not taxing them on foreign earnings. What are you shitting me? We should tax them two thousand percent on foreign earnings. Let's bring the factories back. Yep. Hey, don't. I mean, we don't have. Do me jobs. a favor, though. Hang on. Do me a favor. Don't. Tax people who work overseas on their foreign earnings. Right? <laughs> well, man, I think I think there was an exception. Garland Green gets yeah, exception. That's right. You're gonna hear with exception four four one. Because yeah. I'm sitting in here. I wish you could see what I'm standing here, looking over the the. Uh, I got the ocean here to my left, and I got this. New, don't tax me because if you do, then my life goes back to what it was in the states. <laughs> hey, uh, before the show started, I said there was something I wanted to read, and yes. this is. I want to do a piece here, and it's, uh, we think we have just enough time for it. This is a piece I wrote about a month after uh, the planes hit the towers. Um, we had the local hippies and everything got together, and they put on a poetry reading. I think I pissed them off a little bit with my piece. Um, There's something I wrote called Paper Dance. It's a three-part poem. 
Part 1. Late October 1986. I sat on the edge of the flight deck, watching the Atlantic surge and flow as our amphib force steamed west, making our way home. Such a quiet journey it was compared to the first Translant, where we plowed and shuddered through wind-whipped waterfalls churned by an endless storm. Heaving us okay. and pitching us. What's that, Jim? Can you hear me? Yeah, yep. I lost you guys for a while. I okay. told you that it was going to be a spirited conversation, didn't I? You did. <laughs> D- Dave, David is David. Start, start. David started reading his poem. Start that one again for me, if you would. All right. Yep, I will. Okay, so it's called Paper Dance. A three-part poem. Part one. Late October 1986, I sat on the edge of the flight deck watching the Atlantic surge and flow as our amphib force steamed west, making our way home. Such a quiet journey was compared to the first Translant, where we plowed and shuddered through wind-whipped water walls, churned by an endless storm, heaving us and pitching us, ragdolls in a tempest, tempest tantrum. Six months later, and the ship glided gently over the waves, the period long and soothing. I sat there watching the wake disappear long before it met the horizon's curve, when a sergeant sat next to me, three reams of office paper, Overstock not allowed to return through customs. Never have understood that. And he started to methodically make paper airplanes, one after the other, his hands folding the paper in a physical mantra, each one tossed into the slipstream turbulence at the stern of the ship. Without fail, the crafts fell into the sea, not getting high enough to break the downdraft pull. Hey, Sergeant, mind if I have it to go? He handed me close to 100 sheets, and we talked and joked and about our shitty air, paper airplane engineering aptitudes, laughing as we folded, tossed, and watched him corkscrew into the wash. Over and over and time after time, as the paper piles dwindled, until finally there was but two sheets left. I took mine in mock frustration and flung it straight up in the air, t- uh, throwing it high, high enough to break over the top of the slipstream cap, and that single flat sheet became a wing. We watched, amazed, as it floated, twisted, turned, danced, sunlight catching on the stark whiteness, twirling until it was lost from sight. Part 2 I turned on the TV in the break room after listening to reports on the morning news of a plane that took a left instead of a right and parked itself on the 82nd floor of the tallest building in New York. I wanted to see what the camera saw wanted to get the passerby rubbernecks thrill of a bystander at an accident scene a voyeur peeking through the distance and I watched smoke pour out of the gaping maw I settled in coffee steaming from the cup the talking heads discussing the response team and team's intentions while the second airship in the clear blue late summer sky caused the world's heartbeat to skip stop stutter we watched replay time and time again, wishing to believe that a bad dream permeated our collective unconscious by in a Jungian nightmare. Through the smoke and the dust upon the winds floated sheet upon sheet of paper, twisting, twirling, dipping, dancing, a waltz 10,000 feet overhead of rescue workers and debris-coated survivors running through Liberty Plaza, Unable to look at the sky to the skies above to see the paper sheets released from inside the metal box, moving with the the grace of skaters on the morning winds. Part three. It was but a moment that the camera captured the beauty, taking me back to that flight deck edge of the aging gray battle bucket, taking me out of harm's way. And now we're both retired watching as younger men in ships are sent to do jobs we no longer can. But watch as the single, sheet, single sheets of paper slip and dance on, on rivers of air and hope the dance becomes a dance of liberation and a dance of joy. It's powerful stuff, David, man. You know what I right. think what it, what it really does for us? is, and, and you talk about it being an interesting conversation. Here's what I think that today brings. You've got three or four veterans serving all of us sitting in here talking about it and we are we are we we represent all of the different places in the united states and all the different 
people that are there and differing opinions about where we are at this moment in our nation. But one, thing is, but one thing is for certain, and this is what I really want to say to you guys. First of all, it's excellent and awesome to be with vets like you and to be with people who are reaching out and care passionately, even though you want to live with your chickens and all that other stuff. <laughs> There's no question that you're still engaged and you care. And that matters. It matters, you guys. Oh, it matters big time. Matters big time. And, and I, I want to read something. This is not. These are not my words. If I could, if I, if I please. had enough, I would have loved to have read this uh, to wrote this. But it's a one paragraph. Capitalism and the American dream are dead only to the extent that we are willing to let them die. The America we live in today is not the America I grew up in. That does not erase my memory of what was or what could yet be again if enough of us refuse to accept the degradation of our country by our elected by our elected leaders and the users among us among us until they take away our right to vote and individual freedoms that we, that were so valiantly fought for by past generations, I believe there will always be enough of us left with the strong principles and moral compass to educate our children and neighbors at to, as to what this country is about. No, I don't expect the changes to change the beliefs and attitude of those around us. I'll be satisfied just to transform enough of them to still make a difference. Amen. Amen. And, you know, there, therein lies the issue. There, gentlemen, our, our voices are getting out there. We're starting small. We're having impacts. But um, it's there. And, unfortunately, we're there. We're... We went five over on September 11, and and um, and I'm pleased to report that we only lost Jim twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, he probably lost some more now, but he didn't lose his contact. Yeah, excellent. There you go. <laughs> How about if we do this, Rich? How about if we bring you back again on the same kind of deals that we're talking about? And the reason why I, the reason why I'm reaching out and asking that question is because if we're not careful, we will find ourselves advocating and missing a lot. There's no, I don't think any, well, I mean, I'm not, I am not a Republican, let's be clear, but on the same token, I'm not, I'm not Beads and Sandals International either. And I think that if you can find your way to talk about these different places in a convergent discourse and coming together with different thoughts and making people think differently, I believe that we can do a better job on this program, um, you know, further down the road. But unfortunately for my listeners and keeping it under our 60 meg limit here that I'm hoping to do, I think we better sign off. Do we have, uh, let's, let's forego the shout outs today. Uh, yep, I was already going to. Yep, David, and we'll do that and, and say a special thanks and Jim for producing the show for us. I appreciate it, man. And I'd oh. like to say a, I'd like to say a special thanks to everyone who's ever served. Yeah. Ditto. Ditto. And salute to those nine eleven survivors who refused to take the millions of dollars in return for their souls, Amen. and they continue to sue, sue, and and find out the truth. Amen. Amen. Well, fellas. Uh, Super Bowl weekend or, Super, or uh, football Sunday kicks off on 9-11 today, but we're going to say a special thanks uh, for, the, for the gang here. Uh, David and my left, Jim to my right. We've got our New York City guests coming in, coming out of from Tel Aviv. I'm Gar. Thanks a lot for hanging in.